Now we get into the next section, which is the birth announcement of John. This is chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. This section records the birth announcement of John, which brings an end to the 400 years of absence of Yahweh's prophets. With the birth of John, Yahweh was announcing that the time had come to unfold his promises in the prophets to free Israel from their spiritual exile and make them a new people. The birth announcements of John and Jesus developed the themes of promise moving to fulfillment and then to praise. So as we go through these stories, Luke is going to follow the the three-part structure of it will begin with an angelic visit that will promise the birth of John and Jesus, which will then move to the evidence of that promise being fulfilled, the actual miraculous birth, either through the barren womb of Elizabeth or the virgin birth of Mary, and then a praise response of those individuals for what God has done. So this is the pattern that he's going to follow. Verse 5, during the reign of Herod, king of Judea, there lived a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and he had a wife named Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron, and they were both righteous in the sight of God, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they did not have a child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both very old. So we are introduced to the time period that this story begins in and the reign of Herod. Now this is significant because of all the religious writings that talk about people like Buddha or Muhammad or the false writings of Jesus. None of these writings of other religions are rooted in historical events and people, nor are they narrative stories about historical people and lives and events. All these other stories, you're just told that there was this man, Buddha or Muhammad, and then we're just told things that they did or said, and they're very episodic, very choppy, and not very woven together. The Gospels and the Bible are the only writings from this time period or about religious figures of religion that are actually narrative that actually tell you narrative stories about what is happening and done, specifically rooted in historical events with people and, and, and dates and events. Which means you can go outside the Bible and verify these things through other historical writings of other nations of that time period. So Herod has been validated. Caesar Augustus has been validated. Quiranus has been validated as historical figures, Pilate. And yes, there was a time that they had not been validated, and there are other things that have not been validated in the Bible, but it's only because they hadn't been discovered in archaeological digs or writings yet, and are they yet to be. There was a time that nobody really believed that Pilate existed, but then we discovered it. And the reason that not everything has been validated yet, but you can't just dig up the entire land and country of Israel because people lived there. But what's important to understand is that though everything hasn't been validated, first, nothing we found has proven anything in the Bible wrong, and two, much of it has been validated. So what Luke is doing is he's rooting you in historical time period with historical people. Now this is also what shows us that Jesus is most likely born around 6 B.C., about six years before A.D., which is the year of our Lord, which is basically zero is when he was supposed to be born. 
And the reason that he's born before he's supposed to be born, according to the calendar that we go by, B.C. and A.D., is because the person who established that dating in the early Roman Catholic Empire basically got it wrong. He didn't have the wealth of archaeological evidence at his fingertips like we do today. Most scholars, though there is some dispute in some people, believe that Herod the Great died around 4 B.C., which means Jesus had to be born before that because Herod tried to kill Jesus. We also know that the Magi came within a year or two after Jesus' birth, so that means that Jesus had to be born around 6 or 5 B.C. at the earliest. So this is the time period. Now we're introduced to two figures, a couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now the first thing that we're told about them is they are priests. They're the tribe of Levi, who God back in Exodus assigned to be the priests of the tabernacle and temple, which means they have a greater access to God than any other tribe, which brings them a greater prestige than any other tribe, which also demands a greater standard of righteousness and holiness from them than any other tribe. So these are very significant people in the nation and the socio-political culture of Israel. So these aren't the poor or the culturally insignificant or the low status people. These are high status. And we're told that they're serving the temple. And by specifically mentioning Elizabeth as a descendant of Aaron, makes it very clear that she's not just a Levite because she's married into the tribe of Levite, but she is a Levite herself. We're also told that they were righteous. In fact, this is emphasized in three different ways. We're told that they were righteous, that they followed all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and they were blameless. So they were righteous, meaning they nobody's perfect and nobody's without sin. But by calling them righteous, there's two kinds of righteousness. There's a there's a practical righteousness and a literal righteousness. Literal righteousness is when you are literally righteous. You're literally right before God because there's no sin. A practical righteousness is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so no one can truly be righteous. But God credits to you righteousness because of your faith, because of your love and devotion to him, because of your desire to obey him and please him. And then we see this in Genesis 15 where Abraham's definitely not a good not always a good person and has done some really messed up things, but God credits to him righteousness, treats him as if he's righteous because of his incredible faith. And so that's what they declared. Obeys, follows the commandments and ordinances. This doesn't mean they perfectly obey them. They're just seeking to follow them and pursue them and try to obey them. That they're blameless. This doesn't mean that you can't blame them for anything because they're without blame. It means that blameless is the same thing that Noah was called and Job was said to be, and the same idea of Enoch walking with God. And it's the idea that you seek to obey God, you seek to pursue and follow and obey God, and when you don't, you repent quickly. Repenting quickly makes it very clear that your, your account is kept short. So I've used this example in the past when we've talked about blameless in the First Testament, but every time a president or somebody runs for president, the media immediately digs up all this stuff on them. And it's usually some kind of affair or alcoholism or drug addiction or some kind of scandal in some kind of way. 
And no matter how many times this happened, the American people are always like, oh my gosh, it's so shocking. I didn't know that. I can't believe our candidate has got flaws. And it's usually shocking and surprising because they've tried to cover it up. And they have covered it up. And it even shocks their family members. And if it doesn't, it's their family members have been complicit in covering it up and hiding it. And so in that sense, they're not blameless because they're not really trying to pursue and do the right thing. And when they screwed up, they're not trying to make it right. They cover it up. Blameless means that you have been an alcoholic or you were caught in an affair or something like that. And then you did confess it and you went before people and you confessed it to them. And you don't have to confess it to everybody in the entire world because the more public your sin, the more public your confession, the more private your sin, the more private your confession. But you confess it to a group of people, family, friends, whatever, and they become your accountability partners. They know what's going on in your life. You, sur you submit yourself to their accountability and you put fences up in your life to keep yourself from going into that temptation again. And you turn away from it and you pursue that. And you might slip up here and there, but you're constantly walking away from it more and more. And people know about it. And therefore, you're blameless because you did disobey, but now you're repenting quickly and making it known to people and having them hold you accountable. So that one day when you run for president and they find all this stuff on you and people are shocked, a good number of people around you say, we're not shocked, we're not surprised, we've known about this all the time. And here's what they've done to get better. Here's how they've stopped. And here's the accountability they surround themselves and here's the track record. And it takes the shock, it takes the judgment, it takes the horror of it all because you're dealing with it quickly, which means we're all sinners and we all sin, but we keep the time between sin and confession small and we keep the amount of unconfessed things very small. And this is what they're said to be. Now, why is, the, why is Luke emphasizing this so much? One, because he wants you to know that God is coming to them not because of their high status, or wealth or prestige, but because they're righteous and they're, they're faithful to God. But despite their prestige and righteousness, many people in the culture would have looked down on them and actually seen them as sinful or being judged by God for their sins because Elizabeth is barren. And remember, we talked about this. If you have some kind of complication, if you have some kind of physical ailment or flaw in you or you're not wealthy or you're not prestige powerful powerful then that means you've committed some kind of sin and god is judging you and so most of the people in their culture would be looking at them and condemning them as having come some kind of sin and they're being judged now there would definitely be friends and family who would still accept them maybe they don't all think that way but they might still be thinking like, oh, you, you still need to deal with this. There's still something not right. And they might be hounding them a, a little bit because they love them. Like Job's friends. Job's friends, when he got sick, they, they, they loved him. They stood next to him. They, they shared, suffered with him and mourned with him in his pain. But they also kept saying, hey, Job, you committed some kind of sin and God's punished you. So repent, repent. Even though they still cared about him because they did it because they that that was a loving thing to do. And so Luke is emphasizing the fact that they're barren not because they've sinned and God is judging them, but they're barren because they live in a fallen world and because God is going to do an amazing, miraculous thing in their life to demonstrate his power and glory. So in verses 8 through 10, this forms a chiastic structure where you have a series of events 
that lead to a climactic event or a pivotal event, and then those events are repeated again in reverse order, so to speak. And so this emphasizes that the most important thing is the thing at the center. A, we have the service and sanctuary to the people in verses 8 and 10, which is mirrored by the people's sanctuary and service in 21 through 23. And then that's followed by B, the angel's appearance and Zechariah's response in verses 11 through 12, which is mirrored by B, Zechariah's objection, the angel's response in verses 18 through 20. At the center of this is the announcement of the good news, 13 through 17. By mirroring this and putting something in the center, the narrator is emphasizing that the most important thing is the thing that is at the center, X, the announcement of the good news. Verse 8, we're told this, Now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the holy place of the Lord and burn incense. Now the whole crowd of people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering. Zechariah is a priest who is serving in the temple, making offerings to God. When God first established the Levitical priesthood from the tribe of Levi, he made them responsible for serving in the tabernacle, which was divided into two rooms, the holy place where any priest could go in and take care of the articles and the rituals that were there, including the burning of incense, which was a very prestigious thing to do, a very honorable thing to do. And then the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God was, and that only the high priest could go in one time a year. Later, this was rebuilt into the temple. Now, at the very beginning of this, during the time of Aaron and Moses, there were only so many Levites. So all the Levites served in the tabernacle and did the animal sacrifices and attended to the things in the tabernacle. But by the time we get to David right before the temple was built under Solomon, there are so many Levites that it is physically impossible for them to all be able to fit into the tabernacle or even the temple that would later be built by Solomon. And so he divided them up into 24 divisions and then assigned a leader to each one and then rotated them through. By the time we get to Zechariah's time, there's so many Levites that their rotations are so far apart that they only serve for one week twice a year. So sometime in the year they're going to serve for a week and then they go home and they spend the rest of the year there until they get, come back to their responsibility for another week and then they go back. As a Levite, as a priest, they're only serving for two weeks out of the year, the thing that they wanted to do the most. And the rest of the year they're in their village or their city and they're shepherding and pastoring the people and doing the in charge of the rituals there, the Bible readings, the teachings, the ceremonies, all that kind of stuff. This is Zechariah's turn in the year to do his weekly duties, one of two weeks of the year that he would do it. So not only is this a very unique time for him to be in the temple, but he also has the privilege of burning incense, which was determined by Lot. So they would draw Lot to determine who got to burn incense during that weekly duty, and if you got drawn by lot, hauling the longer stick, or we would say straw, then you would get to have the unique privilege and honor of burning the incense, which was right in front of the veil, which is as close to God as you possibly can get without entering into his direct presence. Although the glory of God is not there right now, but they would still view God as being in the temple. You would have this unique privilege 
But once you had that privilege, you would never be considered for the lot again because there were so many people. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime event, and Zechariah has been drawn by Lot. And so he is getting, this is one of the greatest honors and experiences that anyone could ever experience as a priest. This is the thing that you hope for your entire life and look forward to. And this is the day that he gets to do it. The irony here is that usually when you see things being determined by lot in the Bible, it's usually very negative and bad things happen. People die or they're punished by God or bad things happen to them because what you're doing is you're determining the thing by chance. You're leaving it to chance to determine whether you should do this or not or what will happen or who you'll pick. And that's not trusting in God. Therefore, bad things usually happen or things fall apart. You should be going to God in prayer and seeking him and letting him guide you. So this is negative, but ironically, it's actually going to lead to one of the greatest moments in his life where an angel is going to appear to him and answer his long-awaited prayers for a child. And so what God is doing here is the coming of Christ is actually reversing things. Things that were normally negative or flawed or led to bad things are now being redeemed because this is what God is doing. He's going to redeem the world, turn it on its head. We see this also in um, Matthew where normally where he's sent to Egypt to be protected by the command of God. God made it very clear in the First Testament, you never go back to Egypt for any reason. Hagar came from Egypt, the first reference of Egypt being involved in the life of Israel. And her lack... And she's the one that produces Ishmael, who causes a lot of problems for Isaac and the promises of God. And then then they go into Egypt for slavery. And when they come out, God says, you're never to go back to Egypt for any reason, because that's the house of sin and slavery and idolatry. And you're never to go back there for any reason. Yet when we get the Gospels, God specifically tells Mary and Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt to find safety and protection from the horrible, evil king who is like the pharaoh of Egypt of the First Testament in order to escape that. And so now Egypt becomes a good thing. Egypt was this house of slavery, sin, and death is no more because God is going to redeem the world. And so we see these reversals of things in the Gospels because of the coming of Christ. And so the lot is now being reversed here. So why he's here on this long-awaited day, verse 11 says, An angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, appeared to him. And Zechariah, visibly shaken when he saw the angel, was seized with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. So this angel appears, and the minute he appears, Zechariah falls to the ground in fear. And the angel responds by saying, do not be afraid. This is a very common response all throughout the First Testament. Whenever angelic beings appeared in their full glory, or people like Isaiah and Daniel are taken up into the heavens and see the angels, they fall down in fear. And the angels immediately respond by saying, fear not. God is with you, or we're coming here to bless you or prophesy, not judge you or condemn you which communicates the idea that there's this great power coming out of them. Now, the thing that you must understand is that all throughout the Bible, angels are portrayed as men. 
They're definitely not portrayed with wings. You have the cherubim and the seraphim that are portrayed with wings, but they are like guardians of the throne, so to speak, and they're very unique and distinct from the other sons of God, which is what the First Testament calls what we know as angelic beings, the sons of God. And I have a an article on that on my website that you can check out, or go to Genesis chapter 6 and you can learn about it, or the divine counsel of Yahweh, and you can learn about what the sons of God are more specifically. But what we know as angels are called as angels in the Second Testament. They're called the sons of God in the First Testament. They are never portrayed as having wings. The cherubim and seraphim do, but not the sons of God. And they're usually portrayed as having wings in art because wings became metaphorical, metaphorical or symbolic of being divine because birds are up in the air and the only thing that's really high up in the air above them are the gods or divine beings. And so usually you would give humans wings and art to make it very clear to the person viewing the art that this is a god or an angel or divine being and not just another human because the gods often look like humans. This is why we have this idea of angels having wings. But all throughout the First Testament, they're always portrayed as military warriors. God is the king, and the angels, or the sons of God, are his military warriors. And they're always appearing in a military kind of garb, with weapons, and they're giving announcements, more like the king has an announcement for you in a military kind of a sense, rather than just some kind of telegram coming to you and being delivered and so he would be appearing as a divine being with all this glory and power coming out of him but he also would be in this military garb announcing the king and knows the message that he will give is about and we'll see this when gabriel who is the angel appearing to zechariah comes to mary and it's a very military announcement that he gives to mary about the birth of jesus Zechariah has nothing to fear because he's righteous and God has come to bless him. And this is why he's told to not be afraid. Now we get into the message and the prophecy or the purpose of what John is to be. John's name means Yahweh has been gracious. So the world and the culture has not been gracious to them. The physical ability to have children has not been gracious to them. But God is going to be gracious to them and has been gracious to them.